Hello, and welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 11, a patchwork of medieval authority, recapping 476 to 1066. I want to begin this episode with an apology. I took a little unannounced break in producing episodes simply because life was getting too busy and I needed to catch up on some other projects I'm working on. Episode production may be a little more sporadic throughout the summer as well for this reason. Summers are quite busy around here. It was always my intention to provide a recap or a summary of where we've been so far in our journey of covering the development of the Western legal tradition during medieval times leading up to the Magna Carta in 1215 AD. To do this, it is necessary to focus heavily on both the Anglo-Saxon England and France and particularly the Merovingian France and later France under the Carolingians and the Normans. This is because there are three primary influences that made England what England was at the time of Magna Carta was signed by King John. In fact, it's a major contributing factor to what makes England and the United States what it is today. These primary lines of influence would converge in England after 1066 began with a common heritage as well the Germanic tribes of Northern Europe. We do, we do not know a lot about these tribes, but we know they maintained pagan customs and traditions of their own dating back centuries prior to the Germanic invasions of the 5th century. We know this from the Roman historian Tacitus, who documented life among the Germanic tribes, and he provides a major source of information for us. Interestingly, it is clear these Germanic tribes, even before their conversion to Christianity, maintained a strong sense of clan and family bonds. The familial roles of women were held in high esteem, especially their roles as mothers and supporters of their husbands, even on the battlefields. This is contrasted with the typical idea we have of the so-called barbarians, who invaded a civilized Western empire and contributed to the collapse of the Western Roman civilization. We talked about the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West and the reasons for it, which probably was a combination of several factors, including military invasions, yes, but also an overextension of central authority that could not maintain control over vast reaches of territory. But what's important for our purposes is that the Roman influence never completely died out. It was absorbed by those many Germanic tribes that moved into the old Western territories and adopted Roman practices, including legal practices, to their own traditions and customs. This was especially true in the territory of Old Roman Gaul, for which most part later became France. It was called France because it was the Frankish Germanic tribes that seized control of the area north of the Spanish peninsula, which remained primarily under the control of the Visigoths. Eventually, the Franks under Charlemagne claim the title of emperor to the dismay of the emperors in Byzantium, the old Eastern Roman Empire. The Pope even crowned Charlemagne in this capacity, although Charlemagne would claim he never expected that. Now, after touching on the various Germanic invasions and discussing the Germanic folklore, which they brought with them in episode four, we covered uh, the Merovingians and the first Frankish dynasty that eventually beat out uh, their Frankish rivals and became the reigning dynasty in Francia for several centuries, 
under its most famous king, King Clovis, and his wife, Clotilde, who aided Clovis in bringing him to his Catholic conversion. Clovis and his successors were very good administrators and managed to assimilate Roman practices of administration with much of the Germanic folklore that was brought with them from the East. Like the Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian, whose laws and customs were memorialized in writing, Clovis too memorialized much of the Germanic folk law into the Salic law. While not what we would know as modern statutory law, it served more as a written documentation of oral laws and customs that already existed among the Frankish people. But because it was written, these customs were more easily passed on to future generations and served as a key foundation to the development of the Western legal tradition. The Anglo-Saxons were also Germanic tribes that migrated west, but primarily to the island of Great Britain, of which the southern half was controlled by the Romans at one point before being abandoned. This gap between the abandonment of Britain by the Romans and the Anglo-Saxon invasions meant that the Roman influence was not as heavy on the Anglo-Saxons as it was for the Franks. The native Britons maintained much of their pagan customs, and the Anglo-Saxons, likewise, brought much of their pagan Germanic customs to Britain. Even so, like Clovis, these Germanic customs were written down in King Ethelbert's laws in the same way the Salic law was done, preserving these ideas of justice for future generations. The Anglo-Saxons, rather than being dominated by one particular family or clan, such as the Merovingians in France, were under the control of a heptarchy, which consisted of seven separate kingdoms called Wessex, Essex, Sussex, East Anglia, Mercia, Northumbria, and Kent. Now, it is true that each of these kingdoms developed upon their shared Germanic heritage in different ways. The differences were not so much that they would not eventually be overcome as overlords called Bretwaldas began to expand and assert their authority over lesser kingdoms. Eventually, the kings of Wessex would gain control over the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, of which King Alfred was one of the most famous kings, and indeed one of the most famous monarchs in all of English history. Throughout the expansion of Germanic influence in France and Britain, Christianity began to spread as well throughout the same regions, especially under the influence of religious communities called monasteries. Christianity expanded among the peasant class but it converted kings as well, including Clovis and Ethelbert. King Alfred was famous for his strong Christian faith, as well as Charlemagne, who expanded the Frankish Empire eastward, back across the Germanic lands, and even into the northern Italian peninsula. The growth of these powerful kingdoms in future France and England went hand-in-hand hand with the growth of Christianity. And to put it another way, one cannot simply isolate civil development of culture and law from its Christian influences. It was, for all intents and purposes, an integrated secular and religious society, with Catholic Christianity being the dominant religious influence. Now, to give you a couple examples of this, many of the bishops who maintained authority within a diocese or a see, which are basically administrative districts created across the Western European map, were also important landholders and lords in their own right. Not only did they provide spiritual guidance, but served important civic roles as well. Even the kings who depended on the church for their 
eternal salvation could not ignore their roles as temporal leaders as well. Likewise, the monasteries, under the control of religious monks, could serve as lords within the feudal system, but also maintain an important role in handing down important traditions and served uh, educational roles. They needed to be literate in order to teach the scriptures and pass on various Roman legal principles. And in this way, the church was also important for its role in the development of the Western legal tradition. This was primarily done through the development of canon law. I spent an entire episode, episode 9 to be precise, on canon law. The key takeaway there is that the church began to develop rules for marriage, property, contracts, and inheritance. They were added to, or even supplanted in some cases, Germanic customary laws to the extent that they have been or were in conflict. Either way, much of the law we know today in these broad areas began with the church's canon laws. Now, I made reference to church leaders also taking on important uh, roles in the secular world. And this is important to understand because canon law was taking shape. Uh, while it was taking shape, uh, so was the beginning of secular feudal immemorial law. I spent a significant amount of time in episodes 6, 7, and 8 walking through the development of feudal law and the law of the manor. The feudal law, of course, was based at its heart on the relationship between lord and vassal. This was primarily a relationship developed over time out of necessity, especially military necessity. The vassals would pledge both homage and fealty to his lord in exchange for military protection and often grants of land. The most powerful lord was usually the king, and his direct vassals often maintained significant authority over vast estates of land themselves. This was especially true in Francia, but would also come to be true later on in Anglo-Saxon England as well. Now, each of these powerful vassals would sub-infudate lower vassals. These were often called knights. Knights were important persons within the feudal structure because of their ability to fight battles on horseback, which was a highly sought-after skill. Knight service provided the vassal's key service to lords in the feudal system. But I also mentioned that land was an important element to feudal society. This is because medieval Western Europe was primarily an agricultural society. To survive and, and compensate the lord's vassals who provided services, land, and the benefits of the land, such as livestock, uh, these would all serve as important currency, so to speak, in the feudal system. Also under the feudal system, lordship over land did not equate to what we would know as absolute ownership. This is key and important. While we understand ownership to mean an absolute, undivided, exclusive right over a thing, Feudal dominion over land was almost always limited and divided into various interests. Both a lord and a vassal could maintain an interest in the same piece of property, with those interests being governed by the customs that existed between the lord and the vassal, and often their ancestors, because these interests could be inherited. Now keep in mind, however, that feudal relationship was always maintained between the lord and the vassal and would require vassals to pay homage and fealty to the Lord 
even as subsequent generations would replace their ancestors as they died off. This is because the feudal bond was intensely a personal one, more than strictly a legal or contractual one. These vast feudal estates often included villages and hamlets of peasants who were either free persons or vassals of lords themselves. Slavery was a reality as well, but would eventually die out under both economic and Christian pressures. Serfdom was certainly a reality, and I discussed many of the differences between the serfs and the slaves. And I won't revisit them here, but I cover this quite extensively in episode 9 because it's an often source of confusion in modern historical discussions. But regardless of whether one was an unfree peasant, serf, obligations to the Lord nevertheless existed, especially on those lands with the, which the Lord maintained for his own survival, called the domain lands. These obligations were also governed by customs passed down through the generations, often since the times before the Germanic migrations. The Lord would maintain a manor on which many of these peasants would live, and the manor would typically be divided between areas reserved for the benefit of the Lord and those areas for the peasants. Because the peasants lived in close proximity to one another, means for resolving disputes were needed as well, obviously. Now, of the Germanic customs I have not mentioned yet in this recap episode, but which played a vitally important role since the times before the migrations and which continued on to the Middle Ages, was the assembly, or the moot. Originating with tribal assemblies that would govern various Germanic tribal clans before the invasions, many important aspects of societal government would take place at the assembly. But a primary purpose of the assembly, especially after the period of the migrations, was its role in resolving disputes. This was true in both Anglo-Saxon England and Francia under the Merovingians and the Carolingians. At the manorial level, the assembly served as the court to resolve disputes. The notions of being tried by one's peers were, was an outgrowth of these assemblies because at the end of the day, it was one's fellow peasants that rendered judgment when one was accused of wrongdoing. This was true even though the Lord would sponsor the court or call the court into session. Even the Lord was bound to the decisions of these assemblies when a dispute arose between the Lord and a vassal or a peasant within his domains. An example I gave of this was if a Lord for years had allowed the family of a peasant tenant to collect deadwood from his lands to sell or use without rent, and then one day arbitrarily demanding that the tenants start to pay for the privilege. Well, this would be a matter that would have to be brought to the moot for resolution. A key point for our purposes is to remember that whether we're talking about manorial law or feudal law or even canon law, the process of legal development consisted not so much of an autocrat or group of oligarchs imposing their will on a subservient population. Rather, it was a process of discovery by which the king, the lords, and their vassals, and even the peasants played a role in discovering what the law is. Written codes and written charters were certainly helpful in this process, but they did not serve as the means by which laws were created, like statutory law would do today. 
this is quite contrary to what we are used to in the post-Enlightenment world, in which law is viewed as the means by which one group of power brokers exerts authority and control over another, and may do so with a simple command or a passage of a law. This type of statutory law would not develop until several centuries later. Now, that's not to say that the king would not make military decisions for the protection of the kingdom or impose various administrative controls to maintain law and order. We talked about many of these administrative efforts, such as the creation of administrative districts like the chires and counties that were superimposed over a feudal system like we just discussed. But the notion that a king or lord would simply impose his unfettered will on those below him in the feudal hierarchy just simply did not exist. This is because the feudal and manorial relationships that existed were made up of a complex system of mutual rights and duties, and slowly but organically developed over long periods of time. They simply could not be ignored by any party without significant disorder resulting. This was true for even the most powerful lords and kings. This was also true because the church played an important mediating role over the secular system of relationships as well. King and peasant alike were subject to the Christian moral law, with the pope at the top of the spiritual hierarchy in Rome and bishops and parish priests, not just administering the sacraments, but serving as teachers of the moral law among the people as well. And finally, to make things even more complicated, and just to add another layer on top of this patchwork of rights, duties, and administrative controls, the Northmen began to invade both Francia and Anglo-Saxon England by the 8th century. These men of the North, primarily Scandinavians from Norway and Denmark, are popularly known as the Vikings. Well, no doubt the Vikings were tough and often vicious pagans who raided and looted monasteries and caused significant trouble for many monarchs in the lands they invaded, they nevertheless played an important role in our story leading up to the Magna Carta. In northern France, after Charlemagne's kingdom began to be divided up among his weaker and lesser organized heirs, the Normans established a large area of control over these once Frankish lands. Likewise, in Anglo-Saxon England, the West Saxon kings were forced to give up vast territory to the Vikings, who established what we would call the Dane Law. Both the Normans and the English Danes, in many ways, assimilated with the Frankish and Anglo Saxon cultures they invaded. And this was especially true for the Normans, who very quickly adopted and assimilated to Frankish social and legal culture, even adopting the language but quickly. And it was with these invasions that brought us up to the year 1066 when Norman Duke William, known as William the Conqueror, invaded England and would eventually be crowned King William I of England. Upon his conquest, William was faced with a strong, entrenched Anglo-Saxon legal and social tradition, influenced by fellow Danes, but also managed to bring with him those social and legal influences that the Normans had adopted from the Franks. This clash of cultures was a harsh one to take for the native Anglo-Saxons, and it created a powerful potion that was destined to explode in some way. I hope by now you can see why modern students of history tend to avoid getting into the nitty-gritty of medieval social and legal structures. 
it is very complex and in in many ways very foreign to how our world operates today. This often surprises modern students because they rightfully believe that much of our Western traditions were born during this medieval era. And to some extent, that is absolutely correct. The problem is that the later post-Enlightenment era, revolutionary ideas and practices fundamentally changed the structure of society and law, even through, even though remnants of these ancient traditions still exist. At some point, I hope to make podcasts on those revolutionary changes and demonstrate how such ideas undermined and in many ways gutted thousands of years of traditions developed in Western Christian societies. But we can't understand that until we understand what Western Christian social order actually looked like. And the reality is that because these societies were very much organically developed and not the subject of strong-willed dictators, as we are familiar with in modern times, a complex patchwork of rights, duties, and various types of authority matured naturally. This complicated patchwork included the Germanic folk law, with roots extending back to times immemorial in the pagan Germanic forests, the Roman law, especially developed by the Merovingians in Francia, but also later adopted in many ways uh, by the canon law. Then there was feudalism, which developed out of the agricultural realities and the need to maintain strong military protections and the vacuum of power left upon the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. But there needed to be some level of organization among those who actually worked the land, and this is where the manorial system came into play and the application of Germanic customary laws to those relationships that existed among the peasants and lords. Within the manorial system itself were judicial and law enforcement procedures, which offered almost everyone some level of justice. But the kings as well would often maintain a more kingdom-wide system of administrative control on top of that, with the creation of shires and counties and the appointment of officials to collect certain taxes. Simultaneously, as these former pagans began to be converted to Christianity, the church also began to codify moral rights and duties, which extended to marriage, contracts, and inheritance issues through the development of canon law. The canon law served as another important factor in medieval life that everyone from Charlemagne down to the lowliest serf were subject to. And then came the Vikings, who managed to bring with them some of their practices, certainly, but were eager to adopt systems already in place that they uh, had encountered upon invasion. The Normans especially adopted the feudal system and strengthened it with an extreme rigor that William would bring with him to England and impose on a largely hapless population by 1066. And now, my friends, the stage has been set to cover post-1066 England, where all of these influences and traditions I just mentioned, and those covered in the previous 10 episodes, will merge and become the England which gave rise to the Magna Carta. It is my hope as we get closer to Magna Carta and get to cover the elements of that great charter in detail, it will be obvious why this background information was necessary. But I hope it has been useful to get a better understanding of our society today and how we have come so far from these ancient origins, for better or for worse. And in my opinion, we have lost many of the important societal bonds that formed Western Christendom in the post-revolutionary era. By studying their details and origins, 
perhaps an interest and desire will be piqued to restore some of these lost ideas and customs. But alas, that we'll have to wait for later episodes. For now, on we go to cover the lead-up to Magna Carta and the important players and events that made Magna Carta a reality.